Well, I know I sound like a broken record when I say this, but uh, I just absolutely love to, uh, to sing with you all on Wednesday night in here. It's something about this, this building or this time together. Uh, it's such a, such a gift to be able to, uh, to do that. All right, take your Bible or your phone or whatever access you have. I guess Bible or phone are about the only options, but uh, hard copy or digital. Uh, Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20. Tonight we are going to do Joshua 20 and 21. And then at the end, I want to give you a little bit of a report from the Oklahoma Baptist State Evangelism Conference. That was Monday and Tuesday. Quick uh, update from that. Just some highlights for me personally and things that uh, apply to our state and to our church. So we'll save some time at the end. But tonight we're going to focus on... Uh, chapters 20 and 21, which set up the idea of two other allotments of land that are given to the people as they come in. Last week, we covered almost all of the distribution of land that was given to the main tribes, but there are two other portions that are focused on in 20 and 21 about these refuge cities and then the cities that were given to the Levites. I didn't put these, let me, let me verify. No, I didn't really put it on the on the notes, but refuge cities corresponds to the justice of God, uh, you might say, and Levite cities corresponds to the holiness of God, that God is just and God is holy, and those are two themes that just run throughout the book of Joshua. Uh, He is a just God, that he vindicates the righteous, but he also delivers punishment to those that are opposed to him. Equally, he's able to do that because he is perfectly holy, and he calls his people to be holy. So God's justice and God's holiness, the way that ties to these two type of of cities that you find here. So let's pick it up in Joshua 20, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. Here in just a minute, we're going to look at those particular verses, but he's already spoken about this. This isn't new information. Verse 3, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood is a family member of the person who was killed who would come after the person who committed the homicide that you were going to avenge. Some of you have family members that uh, would have that natural instinct within them. They're like, oh, I know that uncle who would absolutely do that, or I know that cousin who would, who would be that person. So there was this idea that you were avenging. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture, so uh, uh, death is going to bring a sense of shame. Your, your family's been dishonored, so you're going to recover that honor. So a lot of that's going on there. Um, verse 4. So he shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he is stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So then they began to talk about these cities that were, that were set aside. Down in verse 9, 
These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he had a chance or till he stood before the congregation, presumably for a, a fair judgment about the situation. Okay, so what is going on here? Obviously, there's a good deal of background in the Old Testament law. And when we say law, we mean Genesis through Deuteronomy, that whole giving of, of the law there. Beginning back in Genesis chapter 4. So I know one of the things we enjoy doing on Wednesday night is a lot of flipping around in the Bible. And so we're going to do that again tonight. If you go back to Genesis 4, you see the foundation of sorts for what is being talked about with these, with these refuge cities. Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Creation, fall, now you start to see results of the fall taking place in, in Genesis 4. Genesis 4, 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Then this language in verse 10 is, is important for this whole concept. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground... It shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth. Okay, you can see a lot of elements there in that Genesis 4 story that are going to track throughout this idea and even leading up to these refuge cities that are established in the promised land. You do find an indication in the Old Testament law that motive matters, intent matters. Uh, God has a particular way that he responds when he says the people sin with a high hand, high-handedly. When you sin pridefully, Versus this idea that you've done something wrong, but it doesn't seem to have the intent to do wrong. That you weren't setting out to do this against someone. It's something that happened in the course, uh, the course of life. And so this idea is established here with, with Cain and Abel. How does God respond to that? Well, he begins to set up a system of justice for the people. That he is a just God. That sin has to be dealt with. That's going to become a particular importance in here. God doesn't just look the, way and look the other way and say, oh, no big deal. He says, no, this has happened, and it, and it has to be dealt with. The, one of the reasons is because you're talking about creatures who are made in the image of God. And for one to be killed is no small thing. So somehow justice has to be carried out, but it's going to be carried out in a way that's appropriate for, for the situation. Now, to see the way that Moses established this, the best place to go is probably Numbers 35. Um, so you go over to Numbers, fourth book in the Old Testament, and you can see where these refuge cities 
were first established, where Moses gives the, uh, gives the commandment there. When you get to Numbers 35, if your Bible have, has those headings uh, above the chapters or above certain portions, Numbers 35 is probably going to start out, and it's going to say the cities of the Levites. The refuge cities are almost a subset of the Levite cities that we're going to get to in just a minute. The Levites are given 48 cities. Six of those cities are going to be designated as refuge cities. And so he establishes the Levite cities that we'll talk about in a second. But when you get down to verse 9 of Numbers 35, so we're Numbers 35, verse 9, you're going to see this. Actually, you know what? Back up to verse 6. Numbers 35, verse 6. The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer to flee, and in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. Okay, skip down to verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent, there's that phrase again, may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation of judgment. Once again, the need for justice to take place. Verse 13, the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills any person without intent, may flee there. Then you get into verses 16 to 21, and it starts to give you some examples that would actually count as what we might call premeditated murder. Uh, These are going to be examples of murder in 16 to 21. Skip down to verse 22, though. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait, or used a stone that could cause death, and without seeing him, dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. Verse 25, And the congregation shall, shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to the city of refuge to which he had fled. And then listen to this phrase. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. Verse 26. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in a city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So you go back home. And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. Okay, a couple of things to, uh, uh, to pick up there. There's this idea of these cities not being... Uh, Trent Butler, so point B on your, on your notes, or point C, I'm sorry, this realization of proper justice. Trent Butler has a, a quote, that the city is at the same time both refuge and prison. Uh, these cities are not a place where forgiveness or repentance is taken lightly. 
So you don't go there just to have a party and hang out for a while and then say, oh, I'm sorry I did that. I'm going to go back to my life. There's a sense of real justice here that, that you're there and you're safe, but also in, in many respects it's a prison. You don't go outside the limits of, of that area. Why, what, what has to do with the location of these cities? If you flip your notes over to the back, you can see the distribution of, of the land. It's, it's a little bit hard to make out the words where these tribes are, are located, but you see those six rings where the cities of refuge. What stands out to you about the location of these cities when you look at the map? What stands out to you? Yeah, and not only that, but more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So three east, three west, and then essentially they fall out north, central, and south. So you have six cities that are located in these six quadrants, east, west, north, central, south, showing that they were meant to be easily accessible. This is another example. This was a really big deal last week when we were looking at the distribution of land. That God is not unfair. That he wants the tribes to be unified. So you can imagine if you lived in the southeast area and all the cities of refuge were up in the northwest, that's not particularly just. I mean, there's not much hope for you. You have a long way to go to get to the, uh, to get to the safe area. But God has distributed these cities in such a way that essentially everyone has the same opportunity to make their way to a city of refuge as any other person would. It's another way that God unified the tribes was based on how he placed these cities of refuge because he's a God of justice, because he's a God who wants to make sure that the people are, are watched out for and that they see that he has a good plan for them. So he has them located. What about this idea uh, they have to stay there until the death of the high priest? Now this is a little bit trickier to see what's happening. But turn over to the book of Hebrews in, in the New Testament. We're going to go to Hebrews twice tonight. Mainly because Hebrews, in many ways, becomes our lens for understanding Old Testament law and what, what's happening there. So go to Hebrews chapter 2. Now remember, the law works this way. As you're going to Hebrews 2. The law works that if I unintentionally kill someone. I'm able to run to a city of, res, uh, of refuge. As long as I stay there, I'm okay. The avenger of blood can't get me. My, my case can be tried. But I can't leave until the high priest dies. There's differing ideas about the purpose behind that. But it has something to do with the fact that in the Old Testament, all killing has to be avenged, so to speak, or atoned for in some way. In the case of murder, it's atoned for in the death of the one who did the murder. In the case of unintentional manslaughter, how would the death of that person be atoned for? It seems like it's the death of the high priest. Now, why would that be so important? Well, you get to Hebrews chapter 2, and here's what you have happening. Hebrews 2, starting in 14. Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. the people, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus, who is the perfect high priest, we find out later in the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But in the case of Hebrews, what does the high priest do? He gives up his own life. He dies for the people. And so it's very possible, we have to be careful as we make these connections, but it is very possible that in the Old Testament refuge cities, the high priest's death allowing for the release of this person is very much a prefigurement, a a pointer to what Christ as high priest would do for the people. That in his death, we would be set free from that slavery when we put our faith in him, we trust in him. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Like I said, that bridge from that concept of the Old Testament law to the story of Christ, it's, it's not the golden great bridge. It's more like one of those swinging bridges, like with the pieces of wood every couple of feet. So I, I want to be cautious and not say more than is appropriate. But the more I looked at this today, the more that firmed up for me. Like, there's something going on there. Because you have to make sense of why in these refuge cities they're not released until the high priest dies. And it just seems like it has to do something with Hebrews chapter 2 there and and those two pieces um, tying together. One other thing I would say about the refuge cities, um, then we've got to hurry along. Uh, It includes, these cities include the sojourners. So it wasn't just for the people. When you go back to Joshua 20, I know it may take a while to make your way back there, but when you go back to Joshua 20 and then verse 9, these are the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them. This is another way that God's justice is not simply meant for the people of Israel. His justice is for all the people, even those Gentiles, even those people who were sojourning with them, who were strangers among them, they got the same opportunity to go to these refuge cities to find safety. Uh, And no doubt, that's a pointer to the way that God would continually be at work drawing the Gentiles into his people, that they would be a part, even though they weren't Israelites uh, by by heritage. Okay, so that's the refuge cities, that God is a God of justice, and, and that's how that works. Chapter 21 you get to the Levitical cities, the the cities that were given to Levi. Okay, so let's pick up in Joshua 21, verse 1. The heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And there they are for you, for you to read at your own attempt to read, read all of this, and we don't have time anyway. At least that's my excuse for not, not reading through all those names right there. I would point, point out this to you before we start turning in the, 
in the Old Testament. Verse 4, the lot came for the clans of the Kohathites. Verse 5, the rest of the Kohathites. Verse 6, the Gershonites. Verse 7, the Merarites. You're going to see here in a second where those names are simply the, the sons, the different groups of that family who would receive the land. So under the Levites are, are these particular families. Okay, there's a lot of confusion. Who are the Levites? What's being talked about here? Let me take you on a little walk through the Old Testament to say who, who are the Levites. Start back in Genesis chapter 29. You could go home, search out an article on the internet, who are the Levites. Most of us don't have time to do that. We'd forget by the time we got home. Plus, it's more fun to do that together here. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through who are the Levites, what's going on, why are they given the cities uh, that they're given. Genesis 29, verse 34. I'm on the wrong page. Genesis 29, 34. Again... She conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. The term Levi is the word for attached or joined to something. That's where the concept goes. You'll notice born just before Levi is Simeon. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Now go ahead to, Exodus, or to Genesis 34. Genesis 34 is a, one of those kind of rated R uh, stories in the, uh, in the Old Testament. But skip ahead to verse 25. I'll leave you to read Genesis 34 on your own another time, but 34:25, On the third day, when they were sore, if you're wondering why they were sore, you just read back a few verses and you'll find out. Uh, when two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Then jump down to verse 30. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. So you get this image here that these guys are pretty vicious, pretty ruthless in the way that they're dealing. Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, you get the story of Jacob blessing or passing on uh, almost a prophecy of sorts to the generations of his sons to come. Look in Genesis 49, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scattered them in Israel. Okay, a couple of interesting things. First, remember that the cities of refuge for the manslayer are part of the cities of the Levites. The Levites are obviously violent, killing people to a certain degree, 
And so it's interesting that God places the refuge cities within this as a subset of the cities given to Levi. Here's the other thing about it. When you look at verse 8 in chapter 49, no, no, I'm sorry, verse 7 in chapter 49 there. He says, Curse be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon, the descendants of Simeon, if you look at your map, you have to go to the bottom left. To If you go southwest, bottom left, of that bottom left circle, you'll see Simeon's land inside of Judah's land. Simeon doesn't receive a, cut, a regular cut-off piece of land. Simeon's land is within the land of Judah. So this prophecy made by Jacob here about his son in Genesis 49 is carried out in the fact that Simeon doesn't get a secure piece of land the way that the other tribes do. The Levites are literally scattered throughout the people. They don't receive any section of land. They just receive cities throughout the land. And so that is the fulfillment of the prophecy that's made here in Genesis 49 regarding these guys. Fast forward to Exodus chapter 32. Actually, stop in, stop in chapter 6 as you're going through Exodus. Go to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6, going to uh, verse 16. You can see the genealogy work itself out here. Exodus 6, 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. Those three names are going to sound exactly what you saw in Joshua chapter 21, that there's the correspondence. If you skip down to uh, verse 18, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, Uziel. Then you go down to verse 20. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses the years of the life of Amron being 137 years. So you see the step down there, that you go from Levi to Kohath to Amron to Aaron and Moses. This is the reason that the priests will come from the lineage of Aaron, and the helpers of the priests will be the other Levites, the cousins, so to speak. Numbers chapters 3 and 4 are where you get the story of the Levites being carried out. When you go ahead to uh, when you go ahead to uh, Numbers three and four, we skipped Exodus thirty-two, where once again Levi and Simeon kill a bunch of people. Uh, so it continues to happen again. In that in that situation, they're killing those who had worshipped the golden calf, who had had essentially rebelled against, failed to stay faithful to the Lord. So they, they have that zeal that is passed down through the Levites, through Phineas and, and others. Numbers 3 and 4 gives you kind of the story of the Levites. Uh, Numbers chapter 3, verse 1, 
These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priest whom he ordained to service priests. But we know that two of his sons died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. Then in verse 5, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron, the priest, that they may minister to him. And then you get this list of all the things that, that the Levites would do. So they would be support to the priest, that they would come along and care for the tabernacle. They would help with the sacrifices. They would do all of these sort of things, and they become, become that lineage. What about the location of their cities? When you trace out the location of the cities of the Levites, what you find is they're interspersed everywhere in the land. What's the big deal about the fact that the cities of the Levites would be interspersed throughout the land? What's the, what do you think the significance of that would be? Yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have a high priest, but they would be supporting it. So you were taking it down a negative road. If you flip it around and it becomes a positive, what you have is you have these priestly supporters who would become teachers of the law. Uh, they're scattered throughout the land. And so what it becomes a picture of is instead of God taking um, these teachers of the law and these helpers of the priest and secluding them off, segregating them off, giving them their own land over here, he purposely distributes them throughout the people so that everywhere you are, you have access to a teacher of the law. You have access to one of these people that's going to become a mediator, so to speak, between God and man. What's the uh, you know, contemporary parallel to that? What's well, the fact that God's purpose is to spread his people out, that we're not called to group together in one location where only a couple of people can access us. We're called to be spread among the people so that in New Testament language, as God's people, you're accessible, that people know where they can turn. Uh, it's easy to want to clump together, and there's a time for that. There's a place for that. You know, we're, we're prone to do that. But it's interesting that with the Levites, that God purposely spreads them um, throughout the land so that people have access to these, to these teachers of the law. Okay, let's look at Joshua 21, 43 to 45. I want you to see these summary verses here. Joshua 21, 43 to 45, is really a summary of the first 21 chapters of, of the book. Here's what it says, Joshua 21, 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had, come, had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. You learn two things about God's plan and God's character from this. The first is that he has complete 
and perfect and persistent faithfulness. That he is always faithful to his people and he's always faithful to his plan. The New Testament, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. I think it's printed there, yeah. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Uh, burn 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 deep into your heart <laughs> that the work that God has begun in your life, he's going to carry to completion. That he is always faithful to his people, he's always faithful to his plans. And the second is you can have that security because you know your enemies are defeated. How do we know the enemies are defeated? 1 Corinthians 15 is, is our friend there. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Andy already led us to sing that passage from 1 Corinthians 15 about knowing that death has no victory, has no stronghold over the people of God because the perfect high priest has given up his life for us. Joshua 20 God is perfectly just. He can be trusted. He is good to his people. Joshua 21, God is perfectly holy. But holiness doesn't mean secluding yourself off from everybody else. Holiness means that God has sent us into the world to put that holiness on display so people would be drawn to him to know that he is faithful and to know that he is able to save and to know that he has overcome death. Um, now, completely run out of time to give you any sort of report from the Oklahoma Evangelism Conference. Other than that's a great way to be evangelistic is to take those points right there and put them to use. So we're going to punt point four about the evangelism conference to next week, and I'll tell you more about it then. Let me pray for you. We've got to go. Got to know that uh, the more I read through the book of Joshua and see these stories, it's so easy to look at these as passages that I would have probably passed by um, otherwise. But to see your justice and holiness and victory on display, God, it's such a, a fresh reminder to us of how you want to work among your people. The fact that you are trustworthy, that you are good, that you're at work in ways that go beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. God, help us to trust you and help us to live fully for you each day. And we know that as we do that, that you would use us to draw people to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.